So a few years ago now, I decided that it would be really good for my heart rate uh, to jump out of a plane from 15,000 feet. And I can assure you that my blood has never been pumped around the body so fast. Didn't know what had hit it. And now the whole process doesn't really fill you with confidence because the week of, people tell you all of their fears of why they wouldn't do it and so they then become your fears. Very helpful. And then the day of, people ask you, are you not so scared? Which I don't think has ever made anybody feel calm, has it? And then you arrive at the skydive center and you're provided with a form which ends by saying that you accept any risk of injury, including death. I mean, sign me up. But I get on the plane anyway, and it's the bumpiest flight of my life. And here's the thing as well with a tandem skydive. You don't even get the luxury of being the one who sits on the edge of the plane, because you're hanging off the edge of the plane strapped to the one who is on the edge. And you're relying on these couple of clips to hold you on to him. And it honestly feels like hours that you're hanging off there, but I'm sure it's probably only about 30 seconds in reality. And then just before your man behind me decides that it's a good time to go, he says, oh, that's actually not clicked in properly. And then he pushes us off the side. And so off we go and me gathering my heart to stick it back in my chest and we fall down. But I have to say, it was actually a brilliant experience. I know it doesn't really sound like it from that, but it really was. Uh, but see, when that parachute went up and I landed on solid ground, I can tell you the joy that I felt in that moment was 90% fueled by the fact that I didn't just die. Like genuinely, I remember looking up at the dot in the sky, which was our plane, uh, and just thinking, my goodness, that could have ended very differently. That day, grace came in the form of a working parachute, and it brought me a lot of joy. As I looked up at what could have been I find such joy in knowing what I had just been saved from. And I hope as we look at the story of Noah here and the flood, we would find such joy in our salvation because we have seen what we have been saved from. Now, I'm sure most of us are familiar with the story of Noah and probably because it's such a popular Sunday school story, isn't it? There are actually more children's books about Noah and the ark than any other Bible story. And I'd imagine that it's partly because, well, kids love animals, don't they? And the ark and the rainbow, they make for great illustrations. So much so that we even see uh, paintings of this on children's bedroom walls, don't we? And we see children playing with little toy arcs, and it all looks very cute, doesn't it? But as we read that passage together, I'm sure you notice that it's not quite the soft pastel color story that we've maybe painted it. The only reason actually that we encounter these lovely animals and this very impressive ark is because there is an impending flood of judgment coming upon the earth. If you have a look with me at your Bibles in chapter six, verses five to seven, it says, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. I was speaking to a guy a while ago who attends a more liberal church. 
And it was just before I'd last preached, and so I'd mentioned something about the surprise of God's grace when his people had turned from him. And his response has just really stuck with me since that, because instead of recognizing how we don't deserve that grace, how it really is surprising, what he said was, that's such a nice message compared to all that Old Testament judgment stuff that some churches love to talk about. And now in one sense, of course, God's grace is a nicer message to hear, but also really disheartened me for a couple of reasons. And firstly, it's because I don't want churches to be known for just cherry-picking what parts of the Bible they want to keep. We believe that all of this book is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we believe it's all God's word. And so we can't just pick our favorite bits if we really believe that. But secondly, and probably the reason that it really stuck with me, I find it disheartening because I just thought, I don't think you know the joy of your salvation. Like if you take this bit out, then what do you think that we are being saved from? We only understand the good news in light of the bad news. And just to be clear, the bad news is this. Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have missed the mark on our own expectations and we've certainly missed the mark of a holy and perfect God. In fact, we miss that mark time and time again, don't we? Our record is far from spotless. And just a few chapters before our reading in Genesis 3, we saw that sin enter the world. And what we see from that point is this downward spiral In Genesis 4, Cain kills his brother Abel, and then we're introduced to one of Cain's descendants, Lamech, who was renowned for violence. And now we reach our passage here, and it says in Genesis 6, verse 5, that the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And in verse 6, then, we read that that wickedness, it grieved God to his heart. It grieved him. And why did it grieve him? Well, the last time we read what God saw, it was in Genesis 1, and it said God saw that it was very good. And now what does he see? Verse 5, he saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. He's grieved because this is not how it should be. This is not how it was intended to be. And just like Jesus, as he was deeply moved at the tomb of Lazarus, because he recognized this is not how it should be, that the effects of sin were not God's good intention for this world. God looks on at his people and he experiences the pain of this creative love. He's like an artist whose work is rejected, like the parent whose child has rebelled and turned away from them. He experiences this pain of creative love. And to a God who is holy and just, it makes sense that sin offends him. That's why he's grieved by it. And if he's really just, then that sin must be punished. Otherwise, good and evil are simply equal in his sight. And I think if that's all that's on the table, if all that's on the table are God and sin as this sort of abstract concept, then we say wholeheartedly, yes, sin should be punished. We long for justice, don't we? We get frustrated when people lie just to get something. 
and we're angry whenever criminals get away with whatever they've done and they don't get caught. We long for justice. And we don't want the God who turns a blind eye to sin and to evil. We don't want a God who will just sweep it under the carpet of injustice. He is holy and just, and so sin must be punished. And so this part of the passage is really difficult to preach, not because it's hard to take theologically. No, when I, th- I think whenever we think it through, we all want a God who is just. But it's really difficult to preach because the implications of that are that we should be recipients of that judgment. We should be recipients of that judgment. And from this point on then, we see the outworking of Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. Death is this, is this sign of God's judgment on sinful people. And if we look then at verse 13 of chapter 6, we read, So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. God's wrath is being poured out against sin, and as we read on, we find that it's coming in the form of a flood. And now in Matthew chapter 24, which should come up on the screen, Jesus gives us an insight to that flood. He tells us something of what the people who are receiving that judgment have experienced, and he also gives us some application for today, namely that judgment is coming. Jesus says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. The morning of the flood, people simply concerned themselves with whatever laid before them. Eating breakfast, doing their housework, getting their kids ready, working the nine to five, planning their weddings. The immediate seemed most urgent and most real. Whatever they could see was what they considered the height of reality. It just felt like another normal day until, of course, the rain began to fall. And suddenly that madman Noah who'd been building this ark for decades and warning people of this judgment maybe wasn't so mad after all. And suddenly the people realized there might be more to reality than what they immediately see before them. And now it's worth noticing that Noah still ate and drank and arranged marriages for his sons just like everyone else. But the difference was he did it all with an ear bent to God's voice and his heart clinging on to God's promises. I wonder, are we more like Noah or the rest of these people in that sense? The rain came down, and while Noah's family and the animals sat safely in the ark, in chapter 7, verse 16, we read that the Lord shut him in. And by implication, sadly, everyone else was shut out. The day of judgment had already come. But if we read on in Matthew chapter 24, which should be on the next slide, Jesus, in his mercy, warns us. He says, therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. We sit here and we know that it's coming, don't we? We know that a final judgment is coming on Christ's return. And we know that our sin has earned that judgment. 
But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Because we also know that we are provided with an offer of salvation, don't we? We know that we're provided with an offer of salvation. And now I'm as glad as the rest of you that we have reached the good news. There's absolutely nothing enjoyable about the reality of God's judgment. In the same way that there's nothing enjoyable about giving someone a medical diagnosis. But we need to know the diagnosis to know if we need a cure, don't we? And what really is enjoyable to preach is that there is an all-sufficient, everlasting cure for our sin. Yes, we have much to be saved from, but that salvation is provided. In the face of this flood, which everyone deserved, have a look with me at what happened in chapter 6, verse 8. Chapter 6, verse 8, it says, Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord which as one commentator has highlighted, it's easiest understood by reading it backwards, that grace found Noah. Before any mention of Noah's faith or his righteousness, we read that grace found Noah. And that grace then fueled his obedience to do all that God had laid out for him in the blueprints of the ark. And in chapter seven, verse one, God says to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. And he's told to take seven of every clean animal, two of every unclean animal, and seven of every kind of bird, male and female. And now Noah had no other sign at this point that the flood was going to come. There was no long periods of rain. There was no BBC weather warnings. There were no panicked neighbors. All he had was God's word. And yet verse five says, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah builds this ark which the Lord had commanded and he and his family then board it with the animals. They all get onto this ark and amidst the terrifying confrontation with death that everyone else experiences, God provides this means of salvation for this man and for his family. Here's the situation. A flood is coming and so salvation is very much necessary but God is merciful, and so that salvation is provided. And grace here comes in the shape of an ark. When I did my skydive and fell 15,000 feet from the sky, only a parachute could save me. And as the flood swept across the earth, only an ark could save them. And as the hymn says, what could wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. From the judgment our sins deserve, our salvation will be found in no one else but Jesus, who, will, who we will see is the sure ark and the greater Noah. It was Easter Sunday, of course, last week. And I would really love to know, did any of you get to do an Easter egg hunt? Any hands up? No, apparently at 24 you don't get those either. Pretty sad about it. But I do remember getting up on Easter morning when I was younger and finding that first egg behind the plant pot. And I remember thinking, this is going to be a good day. And now I know that this is really sad. But when I'm doing sermon prep and I'm hooking in and around the text and I find the word covenant, I think to myself, this is going to be a good day. And I know that that is sad. 
And, I, and I've no doubts, though, that whenever we read verse 18 of chapter 6, you guys thought exactly the same. This is going to be a good day. But have a look with me there at chapter 6, verse 18. God tells Noah, I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. When we hear this word covenant, our eyes should shoot to Jesus. That's what's exciting about it. So far, we've already seen how the ark was the only means of salvation from physical death. But Jesus, he is this more sure ark. Years later, Noah still died. And yet in Jesus, we are saved from spiritual death eternally. He is the true ark. But this mention of covenant, it wants us to see Jesus even more clearly than that. When we get to chapter 8, the flood of judgment has come. Every living thing wiped from the earth, bar Noah's family and the animals which were preserved. And then as the waters subside and the earth dries, God says to Noah in chapter 8, verse 17, he says, bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. Does that ring a bell? If we think back to God's blessing to Adam, have a look then at chapter 9, verse 1, where it's a little bit clearer. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Noah here is represented as something of a new Adam. Genesis 5, it tracked the descendants of Adam. And at the end of that, that chapter, we see that Noah is one of those. He's a descendant of Adam. And so Noah then is linked to the promise that the Lord had given to Adam that the woman's seed would eventually crush the serpent's head. And we think to ourselves then, will this Adam get it right? Will this Adam get it right? Because so far, he seems pretty promising. He is the righteous one in a wicked age who enters the waters of death and then comes out the other side of that into a new creation, bringing about this new covenant. He sounds pretty promising. And the scene seems to be shaping up well because God has just carried out an act of decreation in the flood. And now then on the other side of that, we see the beginnings of this recreation. It's like being back in Genesis 1. That wind in chapter 8 verse 1 which has subsided the waters of the flood is the same word for the spirit which hovered over the waters in Genesis 1. And the animals, male and female, are placed on the earth as they come off the ark. And then we have Noah who's represented as this new Adam with the same blessing and the same commission. And we wonder, is this Noah the greater Adam that we have been waiting for? But as we read on into chapter 9, we find out that this new Adam falls into sin too. And so what we're left with is Adam's line is preserved, and yet we still need a greater Adam because Noah wasn't the one. In Luke chapter 3, we find a genealogy. You know those list of names which we always skip through in the Bible reading plans. And who do we find going through the line of Adam and through the line of Noah, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus became the man Adam chose not to be, and the man that Noah never could be. 
In Jesus, we find the perfectly righteous one who never sinned. We find the one who succeeded where Adam and Noah failed. And while here in the flood, we see the righteous one spared and the wicked die, at the cross, what we see is that the wicked are spared and it was the righteous one who sank beneath the waters of death. And yet as he does so, as Jesus does this, he reveals himself as the one which we have all been waiting for. This sinless savior who would crush sin and death and Satan. We who deserve the flood find an ark. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. We know the reality that while each day might just seem like a normal day, judgment is coming, we know that. Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And so as we go out, would we beckon people to go into the ark? Entering conversations about sin and judgment are so tough, they really are. But I'm urging us to do that and to even consider that reality for ourselves but only because we know that our bad news is met with this all-sufficient good news. That in Jesus we find this all-sufficient good news. That Jesus was punished in your place and that his sacrifice was sufficient as he rose from the dead and that he calls us now to come into the ark, to find forgiveness, to find salvation in him. What is the joy of our salvation? That our sin deserves to be punished and yet God offers us salvation from that through his son Jesus. We deserved the flood and yet we received the ark. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for our sins. We say that we are sorry for all of those sins which we have committed, which we have done willfully and without even realizing. And God, we say thank you for giving your son Jesus to be that sacrifice on the cross which has paid the payment, paid the price for our sins, that he took the punishment so that we don't have to. And so please, will you forgive us and will you transform us in the likeness of your son? Help us to love people well by telling them of this wonderful news of salvation in your son, Jesus. Help us to do this, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.